Welcome everyone who has joined us for this discussion this evening, this morning, wherever you're joining us from. Welcome. Um, my name is Melissa Mungai and I'll be your moderator for this conversation. Just a little bit about me. I am studying human rights and democratization in Africa at the Center for Human Rights, University of Pretoria. I was also the issue editor of the fifth volume of the Strathmore Law Journal, which we are celebrating today, and in particular, the 15 authors whose intellectual might inspired this event. Um, so conventionally on such fora, we wait for the Q&A session uh, so that the audience can get a feel of, you know, and, and voice them, the, have their cells heard and voice their opinions. But we're going to give you a chance right at the beginning to kickstart this discussion. Um, so I just want to pose the question to you, ladies and gentlemen, uh, what the theme of this discussion, indigenizing sites of knowledge in Africa conjured up when you saw the invitations, when you saw the, the when you saw the posters, uh, for some of you who are on the Hosted in Africa network, when you saw the pre-discussions or the podcast, what came up in your mind? I'd like to sample a few of your thoughts. Um, for fear of being the first one to begin, <laughs> I will do it myself. For me, um, I think of words like reclaiming. I think of indigenizing as a process um, that is value-laden, if I can call it that. Um, value-laden because sometimes when you hear the word indigenizing, you think of something, ideas or, or a consciousness that has been undermined, that has been overlooked, that doesn't form part of the dominant way of, of thinking, of writing, of researching, presenting, expressing yourselves or your ideas. So, so, so for me, that's what it means. I'd like to hear from you. I'll start with Miss um, Nahaja Adam. Welcome, Nahaja. Hi, Melissa. For me, indigenizing sites of knowledge means essentially putting people who have indigenous knowledge or what we consider indigenous knowledge into our institutions, which are already colonial in nature, and that is what sets the debate on decolonization versus indigenizing, which this way would come and also contribute because he is the decolonization person. But yes, for me, what it means is putting people who know and appreciate different perspectives of issues of, of how, in, my, in, in this instance, the law and affects the lives or policy in general affects the lives of people and how that can be put in academic institutions of higher learning essentially. So yeah, for me, that's what it means. Thanks, Nahaja. Uh, thank you so much, Melissa. And thank you to everyone who decided to join us for this um, event. Um, it's pretty exciting to be part of such a memorable project. Um, I think it's a very uh, interesting discussion that we're having because I, I, I'm one of the people that believe that indigenizing sites of knowledge <clears throat> is, is inseparable from decolonizing our very conception of what knowledge is before we even imagine what sites of knowledge are. So 
specifically because today we were speaking about um, a, 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 a journal or a publication, as it were. I think it would be interesting to um, imagine what indigenizing knowledge um, from the perspective of publication of knowledge uh, necessarily implies. And I think the journal we're celebrating today is, is an example of that project. It For me, it implies creating access to platforms such as this journal, which uh, essentially celebrates indigenous, indigenous knowledge, but it also implies um, having more of these, especially in an ecosystem where 90% of all the journals in the African market are essentially African housed, but a celebration of knowledge that is not indigenous. So that for me is probably the first stage of, of, of this interesting conversation we're having today. Thank you. I think I've seen uh, Nchiko, Wanchiko. Um, maybe you can have Femi first and then Chico and Chico and then followed by Lizzie Mudoni. Um, what, what, what conjured up when you thought about the theme of today's discussion, um, indigenizing sites of knowledge in Africa? Welcome, Femi. Hi, so first and foremost, can I congratulate the extraordinary feats put on by our organizers? We are hosts today, so I'm, I'm gonna enjoy the spectacle. Uh, it's you know we do lots of organizing but it's great to actually come to something and and see it put on in such a fantastic way so congratulate uh, congratulations out to all of you i think for me the, the indigenizing the, the the concept and for me conjures up many many things as you, as you can imagine but a couple of things that come to mind is is one the concept of regeneration you know oftentimes what happens in in the ways that our minds have been affected and that's even if we have had the um fortune of having been fed and spooned with you know a level of consciousness that brings our minds to even want to be in this space today but what we sometimes uh, um, forget that even the knowledge that so-called predominates much of it is borrowed Sometimes we don't think that what is, you know, doing well in the world is somehow not part of who we are. We've, we've, we have contributed so much and for the simple reason, we are the cradle of civilization, period. I mean, we don't really have to say much more than that. That doesn't give us a right to anything more. But when we understand that as a starting point, then you know that the real issue of the commons, knowledge is built on knowledge is built on knowledge. And that commons of knowledge that has in lots of ways been, you know, kind of privatized, so however you want to describe it, um, loses us. We get lost in that quagmire just as much as anyone else does. So I, I think the indigenization of, of sites of knowledge is the re-recognition and regeneration of who we are in the panoply of what circulates globally, historically, and in the present. And I think when, when we kind of really hold on to that, hey, we, we've got some big movement to come. So I'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Um, Lizzie, the floor is yours. 
So it's very interesting to me that, uh, first of all, I'm very glad to be a part of this forum. Uh, I remember when Melissa was pushing to get this journal made and I know how much effort she put into making sure that the the contributors, that the contributions were themselves very much African and very much decolonial. Uh, Yeah, so first of all, big celebration to Melissa. One of the things I find interesting is Melissa asked about when the material was circulated. And one of the things I found interesting was the picture, the picture that forms the background to, 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 to this conversation. And it, it struck me that, uh, first of all, I don't know where it comes from, but also I was thinking, if this is a university, wow, I'd like to see what this looks like on the inside. Because it just, it, it looks rather different from, quite different from what we are used to as visions of universities and also what we are used to as visions of a modern university. So no glass skyscrapers and and it, it always strikes me with a sort of traditionalness, not in a very quaint sort of um, nostalgic uh, idea of it, but something that has written into in, in into its existence, into its architecture, into its facade, uh, an idea of value. And I guess when we're talking about indigenizing sites of knowledge, then that would be one of the things I ask, what are our facades saying about how, what kinds of knowledge we value? The most skyscrapers we have, what kind of knowledge is this that we value that looks like that? And then what are... What is the architecture of a decolonized knowledge? What is the architecture of a decolonized university? Which then leads me, again, staying with the whole space, solid objects, to this question of site of knowledge. Um, I, I, I very much stand to be corrected on this, but it seems like from the very beginning, when we say indigenizing sites of knowledge, there's a presumption that these sites are um, foreign and therefore have to be made indigenous. And my question uh, about this would be, is it, um, is it not also important or better, is it not even more important to be able to then rise up the existing sites of knowledge and sort of institutionalize them rather than trying to rescue a foreign mission? So, is it always going to be our work to translate from English to the mother tongue? Can we do a Ngugiwathiongo and write in the mother tongue and let them translate it if they want to? So will we forever be in reply to the West? They say, you don't have chemistry. We say, okay, here, we have some bits of it. They say, you know, the, the knowledge that is pro- provide, uh, produced there, we critique it, we critique it, we critique it till the ends of the world, and then we come back to our own knowledges. What is a space of rising, raising our own knowledges and all those sites where this knowledge is generated and making them matter, not just rescuing, uh, well, what at times just seems like the academy. Yeah. Thank you, Lizzie. And, and you brought up the university in the poster. It actually exists in Morocco. Um, the name of the university is Al-Karawin. I hope I've said this right. My Arabic is still, you know, at the, <laughs> the lowest level. Um, but it's one of the oldest uh, universities, either in Africa, legends say, or the, the entire world. And then the process of reconstructing the library, um, you know, to kind of preserve that 
what we call homegrown knowledge. And it was uh, a site where, you know, it would connect um, those from the European worlds and the Americas um, to Africa. And they're great scholars. The story of Al-Karwin is, is very interesting. So that's, I'm happy you picked that out. Um, before I close this uh, pre-discussion session, I just want to know whether there's anyone else who'd like to, to voice their opinion on the theme. Okay, I've seen um, Ms. Njahira. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Melissa. Um, when I saw, you know, the invitation, I was very excited. I, I feel a lot of what I felt was just really excitement because a lot of these conversations, we see them happening oftentimes with um, African-Americans or Afro-descendant people who are either in the Americas or in the in different parts of Europe, uh, we rarely see them here. And I love what I think it was Lizzie was saying, how about like, it, it for me brought exactly that, like us creating knowledges and then sharing them out to the world and not being stuck at the interpretation. So I, I, I yeah, um, I'm, I'm excited. I'm definitely fascinated that we're having this conversation. Um, and I hope that there can even be more more time and I feel somehow even continually excited that even the publication exists. I hope that this continues existing and taking whatever shape that the next um, people will form it to be and maybe a bit more of that ownership can continue to happen. And I, I, I didn't know about it until, you know, I had it from you. So I also hope that everyone who's on this call who can tell like five more people that this publication actually exists and we can continue owning that. And thank you for putting this together. Thank you. That's all for me. Thank you so much, Ms. Jahira, and thank you for joining us. Nahaja, you're burning to say something more. You have the floor. <laughs> and as you, you continue, I, I do note um, your comment, Professor Ambrina Manji. Thank you for joining us as well. Um, Nahaja? So I was more interested in, in Lizzie's, like what Lizzie was talking about when she said sites of knowledge. I wanted her to more or less elaborate on her understanding of sites of, of knowledge so we could like have a, an important discussion because I thought that was like really interesting. So people have been someone back to the floor, Lizzie. Uh, um, well, when, when I think of sites of knowledge, of existing sites of knowledge, what easily comes to mind is something that um, actually I would love to hear Professor Ambrina Manji's um, uh, comments about is um, I remember um, sometimes when, uh, for instance, I talk to my grandmother, you just hear her drop uh, this, this uh, just bunches of knowledge, historical accounts, and you're wondering, wait, 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 why does this not exist somewhere? How do I remember this? How do I account for this and make it there so that people can see it and one of the of the interesting um situations where i found myself uh, uh experiencing one of these kinds of uh conundrums is she told me once about how her, her, her mother who is now my great-grandmother um was uh how she came to own the land she today resides on and that land was given to her with the because the 
settler family with which, well, not a family, the settler farm on which her, her mother and uh, several other natives uh, were, were workers on. The woman who was the, who was, who was the, well, the wife to the order of the farm advocated to, for her to get that land because under the colonial laws, they would uh, normally give that land to men. But so this woman was very much in touch with the community that they even named her Wanjiro, which incidentally is uh, is Melissa's name. <laughs> yeah, so she was very much in touch with the community. And so she advocated for my grandmother, for inst- for my great grandmother to be given land, whereas her, her, uh, the brothers to have her, her deceased husband then would not allow her to own land because she was a woman. So this particular situation, I bring it up, for instance, to ask, okay, so where does this fit in the canon? Is there, is there a space for this in the canon? I, I have tried, and maybe I've not tried hard enough, but where do stories like this fit in the canon? Is one enough to create an entire theory of, say, of, of female solidarity throughout all sorts of, uh, all sorts of power relations, uh, regimes, colonialisms, notwithstanding. So it's it's this kind of um, just upshoots of, of things that were in Kenya we say ground between different. It's like on the ground things are different. So when these things shoot up, how do we then concentrate on giving them the floor, giving them um, uh, the standing to create an entire story of their own rather than staying with the critique, the critique of the West of the West forever and ever. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure whether I've uh, quite clarified it, but yeah, that's that's what I would add for now. Thank you so much, Lizzie. Um, Nahajas, where you had someone Lizzie to the floor. <laughs> Are you satisfied <laughs> with, that, with her response? No, no, I, I, I totally agree with her. I think it's a very empowering response that she gives. It, it, it goes to the root of what we imagine knowledge to be, especially under status quo, where knowledge is only knowledge if it comes from a university, if it's in a journal, if it's published by an author from an esteemed university, and if it speaks to themes that can attract in, international critical acclaim. So mm-hmm. I, I, I'm with Lizzie in insofar as being able to decolonize that conception of knowledge and dismantling the box, as it were, and respecting different narratives irrespective of what respectable source they come from. And finally, well, to also reimagine and celebrate that exact knowledge that Lizzie speaks about, the knowledge that you'll never see written in books, the knowledge that you'll never um, find anywhere else except for from sources like Lizzie's great-grandmother. So I think the journals of tomorrow also need to create space for this kind of knowledge. So I think we are, we're on the right track. It's, it's an exciting time.